come this Lord's Day to continue to consider the mighty power of God to save His people. Last Lord's Day, we remarked about how little most of us know of continuous fear and want and danger, while others in this world are in desperate circumstances all their lives. Jonah gives us a striking example of thanksgiving and praise in time of great distress. He ran from God's commandment to prophesy to Nineveh and took flight on the sea. God stirred up a great tempest against the boat, and the sailors were finally forced to throw Jonah overboard due to God's wrath against him for his disobedience. God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, saving him from certain death by drowning. While in the belly of that fish, Jonah gave strong thanksgiving to God. Even though he was not yet fully rescued, Jonah didn't wait until he was safely on dry ground, but recognized that God had rescued him from drowning and ought to be praised and thanked. And Jonah chapter 2 records Jonah's prayer of deliverance, given even though he was still in great danger. Jonah recounted that he had cried unto the Lord for salvation, while he was sinking to the depths of the sea, and God had heard his prayer and rescued him by the fish. Then Jonah makes it clear that it was God who had cast him into the deep. Surely God used the sailors, and surely Jonah was to blame for his own rebellion, and yet God was the ultimate cause of Jonah's dangerous trouble. But to Jonah, it was God ultimately that had thrown him into the deep, using human means. Under his providence, Jonah next tells the Lord that he at first thought he was cast out of God's sight in the ocean. This is bitterly ironic since Jonah had purposely fled to escape the presence of the Lord in the first place. Jonah now recognizes that in no place and at no time was he ever out of the sight of God. What had once seemed a foolish, rebellious desire of Jonah's suddenly became his worst terror. And then when God saved him by the fish, Jonah praised God for the fact that God always could see him and hear him. Jonah describes in his prayer to God the utter horror of the prospect of drowning in the deep sea and then rejoices in the hope that one day soon he would worship God safe in his temple in Jerusalem. Jonah had cried out to God for deliverance and God heard his cry and God saved him. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah remarks. No matter what we see and experience, in reality it is only God who saves us. In all cases, in all manners, no matter the direct or physical causes, He appears to act through. And so when surgeons or firemen or generous friends or intelligent counselors act to deliver us from troubles, small or great in every instance, it is from the mind and purpose of God who has all power and knowledge and love and works all things after the counsel of His will. Even half steps toward our rescue ought to be given thanks for. When we see the very first movement of God to save us, we must render to Him our praise and thanksgiving. So Jonah's challenge to us is not to wait until the rescue is finally complete, but to begin to praise God for hearing us and relieving us from the start. Jonah could have complained that now he was being consumed by the fish, but instead he saw the fish as providentially provided by God 
to save him from the horror of drowning. And sure enough, Jonah's hope in God was fulfilled. God spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up on the dry ground. There are some interesting parallels or comparisons between Jonah's story and that of our Lord Jesus. Being overcome by water and drowning in the depths of the sea is used in Psalm 69 and other places to describe Christ's death at Calvary. Jonah was thrown into the sea by God because of his sin. The Savior was thrown into the depths of death and the grave by God because he was obedient, but had the sins of his people laid upon him by God. The sailors tried desperately to save Jonah from the sea because they knew it was wrong to throw him overboard to save themselves. It went against every law of the sea for thousands of years of human experience. But the Jewish leaders and the priests and the mob were eager to put the sinless Christ to death unjustly and to betray Him into the hands of their hated oppressors, the Romans. Both Jonah and Christ were sent to judgment by God using the hands of feckless or even wicked men. Both Jonah and Christ were rescued from the corruption of death by God Himself and both by miraculous means. When we give our thanks for believing the gospel, it is the miraculous work of God that calls us to believe. Thus we see God's purposes and sovereign power by which He rescues us from the first to the last. But I want to say a few more words this Lord's Day about God's power to save. In Jonah, we saw the need to give thanksgiving before the final rescue, even before the final rescue, to praise God for His goodness and salvation along the way to His final redemption. But there is another lesson to take here, and that is this, that God's salvation is a miracle and requires His mighty power to accomplish, though often to us we miss seeing that power. Now we cannot miss the power of God's rescue of Jonah from the sea. It's right out there in front of us isn't it, in the text. But let us not miss the power of God in the saving of the people of Nineveh. That is an actually more astounding power. And yet we can read chapter 3 of Jonah and completely miss the amazing and astounding power that God worked in those wicked people's hearts. They're wicked, violent, oppressive tyrants who started wars and stole other people's land and murdered ceaselessly. These were a wicked lot. And you remember that it said the king ordered them to put away the violence out of their hands. This people was very warlike and violent and went around harming many, many nations and murdering many, many people and stealing much loot and much real estate. This is the kind of folks that Jonah was witnessing to. You know, from a human standpoint, it's lucky he didn't just get his head knocked off after about 30 seconds of his preaching. But the Lord protected him, no doubt. But that's why Jonah was so angry that God saved them because they were such evil people. They weren't worthy of being saved like the Jewish people thought they were. No, no, these were Gentile. These were dogs. They needed to be some justice meted out against those people. That's what Jonah thought. And so he was gravely disappointed when the Lord had mercy on them and saved them. 
But you see, God delivered them from judgment. And this is by a mighty power. It has to be. I'm not referring to the rescue of Jonah which compelled him to go preach to Nineveh, though that is a part of God's power that He deployed to save Nineveh. No, I'm speaking of God's powerful conversion of Nineveh to believe the prophet and to call upon the name of the Lord. We read in Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, these words, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. That means it's three days' journey across the sprawling metropolis. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. That's where we ought to stop and gasp and wonder at such a mighty power. Wasn't Jonah's words entirely that did this? You remember prophets would go and preach words of judgment to all kinds of armies and rulers and nations, and none of them ever paid a bit of attention to it, did they? And even the Lord's own people didn't believe the promise of the destruction of their enemies that were encamped around the city of Jerusalem, for example. But yet, these proud, bloodthirsty, covetous, rapacious people believed the word from the Lord and called upon Him. Why should they believe Jonah's preaching? Why should they believe Jonah's preaching when almost nobody ever believed the preaching of God's prophets in the Old Testament? Jehovah wasn't even their God. They didn't serve Him or worship Him or have any history that they knew of with Jehovah. He was just another foreign deity like so many of the gods so-called that all the nations had. They all had their favorite personal gods, none of which could save, none of which had any power, all of which were represented by dumb idols which they had set up and called their gods. Even the king got involved. And look at what it says. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? That's what the king said. And that makes me think that Jonah didn't really preach any promise of salvation upon repentance. That he preached only the judgment that was about to fall. So these poor people didn't even have a promise of salvation, apparently, based on what the king said. And yet they believed the word that Jonah preached, which was the word of the Lord. And they believed and then they called upon God that He would have mercy on them. And this is all evidenced by the sackcloth and ashes and the fasting that went along with public calls for repentance and for salvation in the culture and in the period of that time. And what other nation had ever believed God's Word when addressed like this? When even Israel 
mostly wouldn't believe God. And yet, the people of Nineveh believed God. And yet, the people of Nineveh called upon God for mercy. And this is something that we just take for granted, that if we just go out and tell everybody the good news, why well, then they'll naturally just believe us, won't they? And yet, most people reject the gospel, even though it is put to them much more in a positive light than anything Jonah appears to have said to the people of Nineveh. The situation of Nineveh is an example of what Paul taught in Romans chapter 10. And we know this text well. He's speaking about why the Jewish people won't believe the gospel. And at verse 13 it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is, of course, a quotation from the Old Testament. That whoever calls upon God will be saved. And this has been out there for millennia, and yet so few people will call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that a tragedy? And this applies to Jews and to Gentiles, doesn't it? Now note well the means that we can observe are seem to be mostly human means, don't they? We can't see the power of God working. We can't see the Holy Spirit at work. We can't see what God does in the hearts and minds of lost people who are presented with the Gospel. Just like we can't see what went on in the minds of the people of Nineveh to cause them to believe the Word of God from a prophet they'd never heard of, from a God they didn't worship, and against all of their character and wickedness and evil. But in Romans 10, the means that we can see that uh, mankind is uh, responsible for, if you will, are all described by Paul in verse 14. Look at this. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? So notice that belief comes before at least logically, before a person calls on the name of the Lord. And then how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? Now this is a very strong text against universalism. Some people say, well, God's given everybody enough information in the whole world to know how to be saved. It's all up to them now. But that's not true. There are piles of people who cannot believe on Jesus Christ because they've never heard of Him. But then it says this, How shall they hear without a preacher? Somebody has to take the word to the lost of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that whoever calls upon the Lord Jesus and trusts in His sacrifice will be saved. So there's the call, which depends on the belief, which depends on the preacher or the gospel being preached, and then it says, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So this is what Jonah was supposed to start off with, is to go preach what God told him to preach. It doesn't even appear that he brought him any glad tidings. And yet, how could they call upon the Lord if they hadn't believed the word of the impending judgment? And how could they believe the word of the impending judgment unless somebody 
preach the word of the impending judgment. And how could somebody preach it unless they were sent? And of course, God sent him. And Jonah is all about the power of God that was used to get Jonah into position to preach what God wanted him to preach to Nineveh. So in this case, in Nineveh's case, God sent Jonah. Nineveh heard Jonah preach God's Word. The people believed the Word that had been preached to them and the people called upon God. And God saved them. Because it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God rescued them from the pending judgment which He had prophesied through the mouth of Jonah. So these are the external means of God's salvation. But notice verse 16, here's the catch. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? The full echo of Isaiah's prophecy was this in Isaiah 53 at verse 1. Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? So there is a report of the gospel in Isaiah. And then, lo and behold, sure enough, the arm of the Lord, the power and might of the Lord was revealed at the incarnation in the Lord Jesus throughout His ministry, but almost nobody would believe it. And this is the lament that Isaiah expresses at the beginning of Isaiah 53. And we know, we know we've trusted in Jesus. We know the beauty and the glory of Isaiah 53. God's Lamb punished in our place. We know that. To make a propitiatory sacrifice for our crime. And Israel refused to believe it. And out of us, of course, we know it, we've read it, we've heard it preached, and we believe it. And we think it's the most precious preaching in the whole Bible, what Isaiah told us centuries before the Lord Jesus was born and came into the world to die for the sins of His people. How can people not believe such a beautiful thing? And yet Isaiah's complaint is nobody will believe it. None of the people will believe it. Israel refused to believe it. They rejected Christ. They put Him to grief. Even as He fulfilled these precious promises that had been revealed through the prophet Isaiah. And here's the really scary truth that even today, many so-called Christians don't believe Isaiah's Gospel. They blasphemously reject it. They say, oh, Jesus didn't have to die for our sin. He died for some more exalted, mysterious reason. Or they'll say this stupid thing. He didn't have to die for our sins. He died to redeem us. As if the two are not intricately linked with each other. And then they'll say that if you believe the Gospel that Isaiah preached, or if you believe how it's taught truly, then you just believe God murdered His Son. And these are people who have big audiences. They claim to be Christians. And they claim to call people to repentance and to trust in Christ and to lay hold on salvation. And yet, they don't believe Isaiah's Gospel just like Isaiah had foretold. 
So you see that preaching the gospel is required for the salvation of sinful men, and hearing it is required, and believing it is required, and yet all who hear don't believe it, do they? Most who hear don't believe it. Hearing the gospel is what the logicians say is necessary, but not sufficient to believing unto salvation. In other words, Paul is making it clear that without hearing the gospel and believing it, nobody can call on the name of the Lord. That it's a necessary thing that the gospel be preached and that men hear it and believe it. But that doesn't mean that just because you preach the gospel faithfully and sincerely and strongly that people will believe. In fact, it doesn't even mean people can believe on their own power and under their own sting. And that makes many people angry when you say that. Because they suppose that anybody can believe on their own sting, by their own power, by their own will. And if they couldn't, that would make God unfair. And so there they go right back again and blaspheme the name of the Lord. And they claim that they believe in free will and that any of us can believe. Well, how simple can it be? Well, how simple is it? How hard is it when so few will believe? And when they won't believe the things that to us are so perfectly clear and precious and glorious, and yet they will not believe. There's something broken about man's believer, you see. And these same crazy people will, will say, well, people can believe in Islam. People can believe in Buddha. Why can't they just naturally believe in Jesus? Well, that's because, because men love darkness rather than light. They're predisposed to believe falsehood, false gods, false religions. That's the whole problem that they've got. They're bound in their sin. But that's pretty unlikely that they will believe by their own will. And all you have to do is just look at history and look at the reality around us. Just by our own experience, we think the gospel truth is obvious and believable and we believe it, but most who hear it don't believe it. And poor Isaiah, you see, had been told beforehand that this would be his great sadness when the Lord commissioned him in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember there was that big scene of the angels crying, holy, 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 the cherubim. And of Isaiah saying he was a man of unclean lips and he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And God calls out, who shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Lord, here am I, send me. Then at verse 9 of Isaiah 6, and he said, that is the Lord, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed and understand not, see ye indeed or but perceive not. Well, what kind of a message is that? You see how the message that God gave Isaiah to, to give was basically, I know you're not going to hear what I have to say, and I know you're not going to see, you're not going to perceive what I have to give to you. Then God said this, Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. So this is going to be the thrust of Isaiah's ministry that nobody's going to believe, nobody's going to trust. And all the way over into the 53rd chapter, you see Isaiah is lamenting this truth. 
Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. So Isaiah is to continue to preach until disaster strikes, until the unbelief of the people brings about great destruction and judgment. But then God says this, but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and it shall be eaten as a teal tree, as an oak whose substance is in them. When they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So God is promising a remnant of people who will come back from the captivity and will believe God's Word and will learn the truth. It takes a miracle for people to believe the Gospel. Just like it took a miracle for the people of Nineveh to believe Jonah's preaching. And just as God worked a powerful work in the hearts of the people of Nineveh, and we read chapter 3 and we completely miss this truth, that the power of God in Jonah is not just the big fish and the salvation of Jonah from the sea and the forcing of Jonah to go back and preach God's Word to Nineveh, but it's also this wholesale conversion of the people upon the hearing of God's Word. That's the real miracle that is told us in Jonah. It is necessary that the Spirit of God work a conversion on poor dead sinners to believe God's Word. But I want to point out to you how Jesus Himself stressed this point in His speaking with Nicodemus. You remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night because the Pharisees didn't like Jesus and Nicodemus was kindly disposed to Jesus. And he said, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Well, at that point, you see Nicodemus has already put his foot in his mouth because Jesus is far more than a teacher. He's the Messiah come to save His people from their sin. The long-promised Messiah. But Nicodemus can't say that. He can't articulate it. Why? Because he didn't believe it. He believes there are miracles. And he claims to believe that the miracles validate the teaching of Messiah. And yet, whatever Messiah teaches, he's not believing it. Not yet at least. So Nicodemus comes posing, why you do great miracles. You have great power. This gives you authority. But look at what Jesus says. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Understand that this is said in contrast to Nicodemus marking out and praising the miracles of Christ. So Christ sort of raises the ante, you see. You talk about miracles, but let me tell you about the real miracle. It is that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's why Nicodemus doesn't see the kingdom of God and doesn't believe Messiah. It's because he hadn't been born again yet. Now, a lot of people read John 3 and they preach it. He must be born again. As if that's something people can do to themselves. But the reason the metaphor to be born again is used is that you don't have nothing to do with being born the first time. The baby doesn't 
decide that it will be conceived and brought to term and born. I saw some idiot say a couple of days ago, well, of course the baby decides when he's going to be born while his, his body excretes certain uh, hormones and so forth that trigger contractions. <laughs> you just want to go, you know, we're talking about the will of the baby, okay? We're not talking about an automatic physical process that takes place with every birth. But you see, they're bound and determined to evacuate from the new birth, from the birth by the Spirit, evacuate anything that has to do with God's power and make it all their own power. So they think, that while yes, we can be born again. We just have to decide to. And we have to decide to believe the Gospel. And then when we do, then we're born again. We bear ourselves again. That's what they believe. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. He's telling Nicodemus that there's no hope for him unless the Spirit of God brings him to new life again. He can't see the kingdom of God. And so what does Nicodemus say? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Notice that he thinks it refers to a physical rebirth. Jesus says, no, it's of water and of the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The, the new birth is by the Holy Spirit's power. It's not a physical birth in which the mother delivers the child. It's a spiritual birth in which the Holy Ghost raises up a dead person. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. So we have to be born by the Spirit or we can never see the kingdom of God. Well, that takes all the power out of our hands, doesn't it? We still are called upon to believe the Gospel, but to be born again in order to do so requires the work of God. And it's a miracle. And it's a greater miracle than any physical miracle that Jesus ever performed in Israel. And this is what He is confronting Nicodemus with this mighty power which must be wrought in the hearts of lost men by the Spirit of God that they be born again, that they be of the Spirit and not of the natural man. And not to marvel about it that you must be born again. So you see that Nicodemus claims he believes in all the miracles of Christ and then Christ confronts him with the big miracle and Nicodemus cavells and recoils from it, doesn't he? He doesn't, doesn't know what that means. And people preach this text and they tell everybody to go out and be born again. And you can't be born again. You can't do that. That's something God has to do to you. It's not a command to us. It's a teaching of what God has to do before a man can come to Christ and believe. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus tells him, well, you know, I came down from heaven. I know what I'm talking about. But you won't receive it. Neither will the people. Unless you do receive it, then there's no hope for you. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't receive the salvation that God has sent by giving up His only begotten Son Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul discusses this matter further in several texts which we will cover next Lord's Day in the will of the Lord. But the point of the whole thing is this, that 
God's salvation is by mighty power, which we cannot understand. Notice that Jesus said that the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now this is not what Pentecostals claim that well, I'm just led by the Spirit, and nobody can tell which way I might go next. But it's, it's, it'll happen when you see it, you'll know it. That's not what this verse means. What this verse means is nobody can understand or see how it is the Holy Ghost brings dead sinners to life to hear the Gospel and believe it. Their salvation, their being brought back to life by the Holy Spirit, being reborn by the Spirit, is something that you cannot direct, you cannot foretell, you cannot control. It's like the wind. You can't see it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know which way it's going. But it's a power external from you that comes upon you, the Holy Spirit does, and raises you to new life in Jesus Christ. And without that, you can never see the kingdom of God. So this is the power that I refer to when I describe what God did to those poor people in Nineveh. He entered in and changed their hearts and changed their minds and caused them to believe when by all rights none of them should have believed. None of them would believe. And so it is with the prophecy of Isaiah and the Word of the Lord Jesus that without the work of the Spirit, changing the hearts, changing the minds, no person will come to Christ. No person will believe and be saved. And so we need to pray that our loved ones and the people around us will be worked on by the Holy Spirit. We believe, and we think it's simple to believe, but for a person lost in their sin, in the darkness, a person dead in their sin, they can't possibly believe on their own steam. And without the work of the Spirit, they won't believe. Just like the men of Nineveh wouldn't have believed but what God did for them. And it was a greater miracle what God did to Nineveh in causing them to turn to Him and call out for mercy than it was for God to rescue Jonah by the fish. And that's the truth in all of our hearts and lives. What God's done to us to cause us to see the Gospel and to believe it and to trust in it is more astounding than anything we've ever seen or anything we've ever read. That's the thing that is the power working in us. And it ought to cause us to tremble. It ought to cause us to give thanks to cry out our praise to God that He has done this to us, we poor miserable sinners who would not believe, but the Lord changed our hearts and minds and caused us to believe and gave us the gift of belief. And when you realize that that's where faith really comes from, true saving faith, then you realize why your faith will not fail because it's a gift from God and He maintains it by that power, the same power in which you were first converted by the Spirit, now we're indwelt by the Spirit. And He maintains our faith and strengthens our faith and makes it more and more until the last day. So that's why we believe that the saints who are truly saved and truly believe on Jesus will persevere. It's not by their own power and steam. 
It's by the power of God continuing to work in their hearts, in our hearts, and in our minds after He converts us to believe. So this is a mighty power. So when we read Jonah, think about God's power, the ways in which it's obvious to us, the fish, and the ways in which it is silent and secret to us. And yet, you see the outworking is that these people turned and repented and called on God for mercy and He had mercy on them. And every time you consider your salvation, you consider what a great work it was for Christ to die for us, to be incarnate in the flesh and God a very God to be incarnate in the flesh and take our sins upon Himself in His humanity and be punished and to rise again the third day and to promise to save all the people that come to Him and not lose a single one. That's almighty power too. But the mighty power that we're focusing on today is that power by which God changes the hearts and minds of His poor people to trust in the name of the Lord to call upon Him and be saved. And around this table we think of God's mighty power towards us through Christ. But think also of God's mighty power to cause us to delight in Jesus and to worship the Lord Jesus and to gather around His table to praise Him and to thank Him for what He did. The people who don't believe, they don't do any of that either. You see, they can't praise Jesus. They can't give thanks to Him. They don't believe He's beautiful and wonderful and mighty and powerful to save. They don't love the sacrifice that He made and the death that He died. Oh, that's just foolishness to them. But that desire in our hearts has been wrought by the power of God through the Holy Ghost. And for that, we give thanks around this table this Lord's Day. Well, let's give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ that was broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the sacrifice of Jesus that He pictured for us at this feast with the bread that He gave us to be broken, to be eaten, that we might mimic or act out the spiritual feeding upon the bread of life and obtain our redemption and glory and hope and joy forevermore by the body of Christ, which this bread symbolizes. And we thank You for the power that You exhibited when You brought Him into this world at the Incarnation and that You exhibited when You put Him upon the cross and laid our crimes upon Him and punished Him for us there and the power that You showed when You raised Him from the dead. But we thank You also for the power that You show in each of Your people when You raise us from the dead and cause us to trust in the name of the Lord, to believe the Gospel. We pray You would save our friends and loved ones, that You would work a mighty power in their hearts. Help us to know that we cannot generate faith for them and neither can they generate faith for themselves, but you will have to be the one with the power to bring salvation. Because as Jonah put it, salvation belongs unto the Lord. And that's what that means. God saves us first and last and we give you the praise for it. Bless us as we partake of this bread, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for poor sinners. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 180 in the black book. The Lamb of God to slaughter led the King of glory see. The crown of thorns upon His head, they nail Him to the tree. The Father gives His only Son. The Lord of glory dies. For us, the guilty and undone, a spotless sacrifice. Number 180.